So uh, in this text of scripture, uh, Luke 57, all the way through the end of verse 66, the intent tonight is to cover the entire narrative story of the birth of John the Baptist. Now, this is uh, a narrative story that kind of fulfills and pieces together one of the older stories that we've already read, the story of the angel's announcement to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist. And one of the way Luke tends to tell stories in the first few chapters is he's interweaving the narrative of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And he's interweaving the narratives of both the announcements of their birth and then their birth accounts and then also the follow-up prophecies that happen after each of their birth accounts. So you'll notice that he talks first about John the Baptist and then he moves and transitions and talks about the announcement to Mary and Je about Jesus. Then he moves again and recounts the story of the birth of John the Baptist and then he'll recount the story of the birth of Jesus and then he'll follow each of these up, kind of weaving these two together. And so as readers in the early chapters in Luke, what you are left with and what Theophilus would have been left with in the first century is an, un, uh, is an inability to separate out John the Baptist, the person, from Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And this is important because as we established earlier, John the Baptist is called the forerunner for the Messiah. And so by weaving these two stories together, Luke is making a strict declaration that by way of John the Baptist being the forerunner and telling these narratives interchangeably, you are left to conclude that Jesus is therefore the Messiah. So it's an extra boost and extra evidence for the character and the, the personhood of Jesus Christ being the Messiah who is sent from God to redeem his people. One of the things I was reminded of as, we, as I was studying this text this week and as I was reading through uh, the scriptures uh, is that God is a God who constantly fulfills his promises. The, the way scripture would say it is that God is unable to lie. He cannot lie. When he says something, when he declares something to be true, it is true because he said it. And so in this text, we're reminded of the fact that God is a God who fulfills his promises constantly. And as readers and as Christians, we are often dulled or desensitized to the fact that God constantly says things and then accomplishes those things. And by looking back over at God's track record, we can be reminded and encouraged by the fact that God is who he says he is. He does what he says he'll do. And he's going to continue to accomplish the things he said he was going to continue to accomplish. God fulfills his promises constantly. So as we move through this narrative text and we're going to take a look at how God exactly fulfills his promises, I want us to notice a few main movements. The first of those is we're going to see the blessing of God to Elizabeth. So first, the blessing of God, which we'll see in verse 57 of this chapter. So verse 57 goes like this. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Now Luke, being a historian, is very concise and clear in what he's saying. He gives no fanfare to this announcement. But make no mistake, this statement is a bold declaration of the truth which was promised earlier in Luke that Zechariah would have a son and that Elizabeth would conceive and that she would bear a son. You remember, back in those days, they didn't have technology to know the gender of the child before the child was born. So up until the birth of the child, there is still maybe a question remaining or some lingering doubt in the mind of the people in the mind of Elizabeth, in the mind of Zechariah, about who this child is going to be. And by the child being a son, it is one more move towards the fact that God is going to do what he said he would do. By the way, it says here that now, the time had, now when the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, this had always been for Elizabeth the time that she was to give birth. 
as she was struggling through not being able to conceive, before she even thought about having a child when she was a young girl, before she was even married to Zechariah, the Lord had put before her a time in the future when she was going to give birth to John the Baptist, before she was even thinking about having offspring. Then she gets married to Zechariah. They grow up and they're a marriage, they're enjoying life together, and they're unable to conceive and they're unable to have the fruit and the joy of having children. And all the while, as they're praying, as they're going through this season, as they're struggling together, God had set forth a time when the fulfillment came that John the Baptist would be born to Elizabeth. God had always prepared this moment ahead of time for her. And even after Elizabeth and John, or Elizabeth and Zachariah stopped praying for their son, who's to come, they stopped praying for an offspring, God is still faithful because he has set before them in the future a time when this promise is to be fulfilled. And this child is fulfilled and the child is born at the time when Elizabeth came for her to give birth. This was always the time for God. God is always on time with everything that he does, even when you and I are not sure about that timing. We live our lives often from moment to moment, seeing the blessings of God and perhaps not even seeing the overall plan and the arc of God's story. But God always has a plan. And although Elizabeth and Zechariah are unable to see the overall arc of the story as they're walking through that tough time, God had always had this time coming for them to have a son. She gives birth to a son, and this answers for them the essential question, which is, can God be trusted? Remember, that's the question that Zechariah has in the back of his mind when he's going into the temple, when he's offering incense, when the angel shows up to him and says, you and your wife will bring forth a son you will have a son. And then Zechariah, you remember his response, he submits to the angel. In fact, I'll turn there right now. He goes to the angel and he says, but I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And he says, the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. So now you have the evidence of Zechariah that I can't have a child because I'm old. And then you have the evidence of the angel Gabriel who says, I stand in the presence of God. This is God's message to you. And so the essential question and the the doubt that Zechariah has is a doubt in the word of God. We've talked about that before, but Zechariah doubts the words of God. And here, Zechariah is forced to, in silence, enjoy the fact that over the course of nine months, God, through the angel's announcement, had told him what was going to happen. And then when Zechariah disbelieves, the angel strikes him silent And then Zechariah has to sit there and watch as all of the promises that God had spoken through the angel begin to come true, culminating in the fact that it is born to him to have a son. And at that moment in time, Zechariah is forced to watch this prophecy, this beautiful, glorious prophecy unfold. And in his heart and in his mind, as he's pondering all these things silently, you have to imagine that this is shifting for him a reality which is that on the ground, although he might have studied God to be true in the scriptures, although he might have studied God's promises to be faithful and Yahweh to be who he said he was, and although he might have read about Moses and questioned the fact that Moses didn't believe God immediately when God spoke to Moses, now Zechariah in the same moment has doubted God and he's forced to reconcile with that over the course of nine months. He is forced to answer the question that, in fact, God can be trusted and the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Elizabeth and Zechariah both are forced to and are encouraged by the fact that God said that he was going to bring forth a son to them, and then he answers that by actually going ahead and doing the thing he said he was going to do. God cannot lie. 
The scriptures, by the way, speak with one voice on this issue. They speak with one voice. You can jot down these cross-references. We're not going to have time to turn there. I just want to read them to you real quickly to tell you about what scripture says about the truth of God and how his promises can be sustained. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, reads this. God is not a man that he should lie. He's unlike you and me. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or, he, or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? This is Moses writing the book of Numbers, telling the people of Israel that God is different than man fundamentally because when God says things, he has the power to accomplish everything that he says. This is why in the Levitical law, the people are not commanded to swear oaths. Say, God says, don't swear oaths because you can't control the outcome of what's going to happen in the future. But God can because he does control the outcome of the future. God cannot lie. He doesn't change his mind. When he says he's going to do something, he in fact does that thing. Joshua 21.45 says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. All came to pass. Not one word of God's law, not one word of what he said he was going to accomplish through the people of Israel failed. All came to pass. Jesus says later that not one jot or tittle of my father's law and what was spoken will pass. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but the words of my father in heaven will not pass away. God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God, who never lies, promised before the ages began that we can have hope in the future promise of what he has set before us. God who never lies because God cannot lie. His word is truth. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 explains, the author of Hebrew explains to us that we can trust the very covenant that God made with Abraham because according to him, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we would have, who would have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. God swears an oath and God cannot lie. So by two unchangeable things, we have assurance and a promise about the future that we have in Christ Jesus. All of these speak with one constant testimony, which is that the word of God is truth. God is unable to lie. Praise God for his grace to remind us of his faithfulness. Praise God for his grace. Because even though Zechariah doubts, God is still faithful to show his grace upon the priest to give him the son that he never knew that he would actually be able to have. And when he gives him that son, not only does he give him a child, but he gives him the child who is to be privileged to be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. God is gracious to Zechariah despite Zechariah's failings. He's gracious to Elizabeth despite the fact that Elizabeth had stopped praying for a child. God cannot lie. His promises are true. His word is true. He is to be trusted. How different is this than the testimony of the world about God? People call into question all the time God's word. Can that God be trusted? There are people in academic settings who will spend their whole careers trying to discredit the very words of scripture. And there are people all over who discredit the Bible and who say that was just one person's opinion when they were writing it on the ground. People discredit the word of God all the time. And yet the testimony of scripture is that God's objective word is truth. God cannot lie. We who are swayed by circumstances 
can yet still be anchored by the God who is our God. We're swayed by circumstances, life changes and we change with it, and yet God is our anchor and God never changes. And so we have a rock on which to stand a firm foundation for which will never fail us. Verse 58 says, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown a great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. They rejoiced with her. You can imagine the scene as it's unfolding, right? Elizabeth retreated for a time so that as she was developing and growing, as the child was growing within her, she would not have to necessarily face the people because you can imagine the kind of conversation that would take place and the kind of attention and the focus that would have brought to her and to Zachariah. But nevertheless, at some point in time, the people in the community begin to find out. And then within the community, within this setting, there is the eager expectation for the child that is to come. You can imagine people walking around the street saying, man, what do you think about Zachariah and Elizabeth? You know the story, right? This is the common news of the town. So as people are selling in the marketplace and trading and as people are passing through, everyone is picking up the news about the old priest and his wife and now how in their old age and in their barrenness, they are going to have a child. And you can imagine the conversation, the anticipation, and the joy that finally is realized when the child is born. And not only born, but born to them a son, which according to Jewish custom and Jewish culture at that time would have been a great blessing because the son gets to carry on the name of the family. The son is the firstborn, the inheritance of the father and the mother. It's the joy and the pride of the community. And so all of them gather together, and when Elizabeth finally bears forth a son, they all rejoice communally with her. And you'll notice that when she, who is blessed by the child, gives forth a son, the community rejoices. And this for us is a reminder that when God blesses you and me, and when God blesses us, he blesses us maybe for our sake, but also, and a lot of times, also for the encouragement and the extension of that blessing to others. Because you'll remember that there are mysterious events surrounding the birth of this child. And so there's anticipation, there's uh, expectation, there's a longing, there's a waiting hope for the child that is to be born. And all the people are talking and there's chatter around the town. And this blessing, this encouragement, as you'll see as this passage continues, does not actually terminate on Zechariah and Elizabeth, but actually has a ripple effect to the whole community about the child that is to come. Here we see that God, when he gives us blessings, they have a wide impact. They go beyond you, they go beyond me. Typically when he blesses you and me, he blesses us for the sake of others and those who we might impact in our own lives. So count that as a blessing as well, that when God blesses you, you are to use that blessing to encourage and to strengthen others in their time. The community rejoices with her. So that really is the first setting. We see the blessing of God, the promise of God fulfilled. And now the second movement in any good story is to start developing the plot, right? Not, ev not every good short story has a linear plot. And here we start to have some conflict, some tension rise in the narrative passage of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. Here you're going to see something bold shine forth, which is the servant of God, the servant of God. Verse 59 and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, well, none of your relatives is called by this name. Verse 62. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So now you have a rising tension between the joyous community and the child and the mother and the father of that child. 
There is evidence to suggest in the first century that although this was not commanded by God in his law at any point in time for the Jews, that there was a tradition or a precedent set that the community would in some way engage in the naming of the child. In fact, at the end of the book of Ruth, the community is the one that gets to decide the name for Ruth and Boaz's child. So there is some precedent that this was a, although not a required practice, somewhat of a common, a traditional practice for the community. And so when the community sets about, this child is the joy of the community, this child for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so they all come together and they all decide, you know what? We're going to name him Zechariah after his father because this is a blessing in their old age. So he gets to continue on the name and the legacy of his father. And so this is what the community decides. And in mass consensus, they agree upon this name. And then on the eighth day, when the child is circumcised, Elizabeth says, no, he shall be called John. And you have attention because the community is under the impression that this name is up to popular vote, that whoever has the most opinions, the most votes gets to decide the name of the child and that Zachariah seems like a good name, good as any other. Let's go with that one. But Elizabeth knows something different. Elizabeth has been revealed to either by Zechariah, her husband, telling her, or by the Holy Spirit's revelation that this child was different than any other child, that he didn't get the name of any other child, that he had a specific name that he was to carry and he was to bear. By way of custom, I think it's important to tell you that um, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John, all of these names have significance. In fact, in Hebrew, a lot of the ways that which they would name children had to do with either the circumstances of the birth or the trajectory of the child's life. But in any sense, there is precedent for the name of the person being corresponded in some way with the events that would happen in their life. And for the sake of time, I'll only go through four of these such names, three of them from this passage and one of them who is just too good to pass up. Zechariah, his name means God remembers. God remembers. It's interesting. Elizabeth's name is my God has sworn. That's what her name means. My God has sworn. John, his name, uh, we've abbreviated in English, but it's really Johannan in the original. And it means God is gracious. God is gracious. And the fourth one, which is too good to pass up, is the name of Jesus. And Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And so by these four names, you can actually tell the story of all the events that are going to unfold just by merit of understanding the names and what they imply. Remember, Zechariah's name is God remembers. And you'll remember that the priest, when he's offering in the altar, God remembers his promise to Abraham and he sends an angel forth to bring about the fulfillment of that promise. He gets the ball rolling. God remembers and he goes to Zechariah, whose name is God remembers. And then Elizabeth, her name means my God has sworn. And God promises Zechariah that he will bear forth a son. And Elizabeth trusts this. And in due time, what God has sworn will come to pass does come to pass and they have a son, they have a child. John, the son, his name means God is gracious. And it is the very graciousness of God to send forth the forerunner for the coming Messiah. And then ultimately, these all names lead to God's faithfulness in bringing about Jesus, who he announced to Mary. And Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. What an appropriate set of names for this story in this context. 
Jesus' name brings about no doubt that God is going to bring about salvation for his people. And in the context of all these events, you can leave no doubt about the purpose of John, the purpose of his mission, and the purpose of the person who he's going to lead the way for. Jesus, who John will make a path for, is going to be the Messiah. Verse 60. But his mother answers and says, No, he shall be called John. This is the tension that she finds herself in. No, he shall be called John. Elizabeth is a woman of conviction. She stands before all of the community and she says, I brought this child forth. I carried him in my old age. This is my kid. I think I get to name him. And I tend to agree with her. (laughs) If she's done all the work, she's carried the child to term, she should get a chance to name the kid. And she says, no, his name shall be John. And the community disagrees with her. And so the tension between then her and the people is that they're going to go, you know what, we're not even going to argue with you. They're going to go right over her head trying to go to Zechariah and see if they can get Zechariah to agree with them because after all, it's the father who gets to name the child. Zechariah, you'll notice, has stayed out of the events until this point in time. He's not much of a planner, okay? As you'll notice in just a few minutes, he's not much of a planner. He's deaf and mute, but he has not prepared anything ahead of time to give any indication what he wants to name the child. In fact, when they ask him for the name of the child, he has to ask for a writing tablet so that they can give it to him. He's deaf and mute. He would have only been able to communicate with a writing tablet. Maybe he was trying to avoid conflict. Maybe he was trying to avoid the action, but he stays out of it as far as possible, tries to avoid communication, kind of sits in the corner while his wife is debating with these people what, they're, what to name their child. And so on the eighth day, this is time, plenty of time for the people to have gathered together and to have decided what the name of the child should be. Then they go and they disagree with Elizabeth, and now they're going to go to Zechariah himself and say, okay, what is the name of this child going to be? So in verse 61, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. Verse 62, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Notice the language there, what he wanted him to be called. All the people are convinced that this is a matter of opinion. They think that it's what Elizabeth wants the child to be called or what Zechariah wants the child to be called or what they want the child to be called. They're all in the realm of popular vote. They have no idea what's been revealed. Verse 63, and he, Zechariah, asks for a writing tablet. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. The writing tablet that Zechariah used, I think it's important to establish this. I always have this vision in my head that they're using stone and they're chiseling away. That's what I imagine in my conception of first century Israel. But really, they had quite an advanced technology. They had a wooden board that they would use that would have been coated in wax. And what you would do to write on it is you would just scribble in on the wax and you would see the outlines or the traces of what you'd written. And then just like a whiteboard, you could erase what you had written and rewrite it. So this thing that Zechariah had was probably his permanent communication strategy, his writing tablet that he had devised or come up with in the meantime, in the nine months, in order to communicate with the people. But at this moment in time, at a very key moment, he's decided to misplace it. In fact, that when they come up to him, he says, all right, fine, hand it to me. He makes a, he makes a motion to get them to hand him the tablet. But after all this and after all this delay, the response of Zechariah is incredible. The response of Zechariah is noteworthy. He writes, his name is John. In Greek, the order of that sentence would be 
John is his name. The emphasis being that it's not a debate. This is not what I want the child to be named or what Elizabeth wants it to be named or what you want the child to be named. We're not in the realm of making decisions on wants or preferences. We're in the realm of asking the question, what did God say? And are we going to agree with what God said? Now, these people don't have anything malicious in mind when they're going to try to name the child something different. They haven't had the truth revealed to them as Zachariah and Elizabeth have. But Zachariah and Elizabeth are then charged with the responsibility to stand firm on what God has said to them. And when Zechariah gets the chance and he's asked the question, what shall we name this child? He says, it's not what I want to name a child. It's not what he shall be named. His name is John. For Zechariah, the name has already been settled. The name has already been settled. The name has been the name of the child since his birth, since before his birth. He's not waiting till the eighth day for the child to be circumcised. He's not saying his name shall be John or I want to name him John. He says his name is John. There's a difference there. There's a certain level of authority, a certain level of command when Zechariah speaks. That's interesting because we've met Zechariah before when he's speaking with the angel. And all that he raised were doubts. That's all he raised before he was struck mute. And yet here, nine months later, we find a completely transformed man who against his whole community and all the joy, rather than going with the flow, he stands against them and he says, his name is John. John is his name. Zechariah is the servant of God and the servant of God is marked by the fact that he simply is a relay station for what God has already said. That's what marks the servants of God. That's what marks the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. They don't say anything new. They've never had an original idea in their entire lives. All that they do is they relay station what God's already revealed to them through his word. And honestly, that's all you and I should be doing as well. The human heart is depraved and wicked and anything we can come up with on our own is not going to be of any original value. But what God says in his word is valuable and it is true. And so all you and I should do is seek to soak ourselves in the book, to soak up the words of God and to be a relay station for what he's already communicated. And this is true. Truth Newsflash does not get decided by popular opinion or vote or mass consensus. It doesn't get decided by science. It doesn't get decided by expert opinion. It gets decided by God. God's word is truth. Not because God speaks and then we judge it by some external standard, but when God speaks, he is the standard of what truth is. He doesn't speak and then give us the option to, oh, that's your opinion, God, and we're going to have our opinion, or this is kind of in the realm of debate. When God speaks, what he has said is true. That's why it's important that God cannot lie, because when he speaks, the very things that he says come to pass. And when he speaks, the very things that he says can be trusted to come to pass if they haven't happened already. Truth is not decided by popular opinion. Truth is decided by the revelation of God through his word. And through the angel that God sent to Zechariah, he told him that the son would be named John. And so Zechariah is not in the realm of opinion or debate when he's interacting with the crowd. He's in the realm of affirming truth or denying truth when he speaks. And he chooses to affirm it. Not because his affirmation makes it true, but because his affirmation lines him up with God, who he found himself standing against before, and that struck him silent for nine months. So he doesn't want to be guilty of a second infraction. And I think it's a wise decision. Zechariah, the word that's used to describe him in this text, 
is that he's mute. And I've talked previously about how that word means he's not only unable to speak, but he's also unable to hear. The evidence in this text is that they have to make signs to him. The way that word is used in translating the Old Testament in the Septuagint, it's the word that's used to describe the idols or the false gods that the people worship, that they are mute, they are dumb, they're unable to speak and unable to talk. They are unable to hear, they are unable to respond. That is the word that gets used to describe Zechariah. And so through the only means he knows how, he's going to communicate to the people that the name of the child is John. And in that affirmation, there's a whole world of truths that Zechariah has just declared that I think it's worth unpacking. But before we get into all those truths, I think in terms of application, right, there's only one interpretation of any passage of Scripture. But by means of application, what can we learn from the example of John here? We can learn that when God speaks, things are not up for debate. When God speaks, we're no longer in the realm of opinion or relative ideas. When he speaks, it is true. It is truth. And you might ask the question, well, how do we know that God speaks? Or how do we know what he said? I don't see any angels showing up today and telling me direct revelation. And you shouldn't. God has spoken to us through his word. Through the apostles and through the inspiration of their writing, through the Old Testament prophets and the recording of what they said and taught, God has communicated to us through his holy scriptures and he continues to speak through his holy scriptures. So if you want to interact with God, if you want to hear the voice of God, read your Bible. Engage with the scriptures. If you're so desperate to hear the voice of God, open up the scriptures and read them because they contain the very words. It says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing through bone and marrow to the division of flesh. The word of God is true, and it's here in the very pages of Scripture. Objective truth is found in these pages. Not potential truth, not truth that's based on science. In fact, science is a moving target of truth. Science is always changing. It is shifting sand, in case you haven't noticed that. Science is confused right now about everything. But God is not confused. His word doesn't change. As firm as you might have believed science to be or philosophy or reason, just look at the world around you and see how far that has gotten us as a Western society. Where we debate the very morality of killing children. That's not a real solid rock of truth. But the Word of God is a solid rock of truth. Objective truth is found in His Word. And when God speaks, we're not in the realm of debate or opinion. When God speaks, we're in the realm of either affirming or denying his truth. And again, the crowd here is not trying to do anything malicious. It's not like they heard the voice of God too and they're going to try to go against it, right? They're in the realm of being completely unaware of what God has said. And Zechariah has the privilege of telling them exactly what God has said. And there are many people in this world today who are in that boat as well, where they don't even know what God has spoken. They don't even know the truth. They might have grown up in church. They've probably never heard the gospel. They might have grown up in the church, in the family, in a body of believers, and they might have never heard the objective truth of God's word preached to them. And you and I are not in the realm of fighting them. We're in the realm of affirming objective truth to them. God says that in his word, his sheep will hear his voice. And when we speak the very words of God, we give the opportunity for his sheep to come to him and to follow after him. We don't use reason, we don't use our opinions, we don't use logic. We use the very words of Scripture itself to engage with the community. All over the place, we're supposed to go 
and bring forth the objective truth of God to those who are unaware of it. Back to the text. I want to talk about all the significance of that affirmation statement. His name is John. What a statement. This is the very first thing that we have recorded that Zechariah has written for nine months. Remember, he's been sworn to silence by God for nine months. He can't communicate. He can't interact. The very first communication we have from Zechariah after he's struck mute is this writing. His name is John. For nine months, Zechariah has had the ability to ponder all that the angel said to him. And he arrives at this statement. And this is a very significant statement. Remember, Zechariah was a priest which means he would have known all the Old Testament scriptures. He would have known what the angel said when the angel starts quoting to him out of Malachi 4 and telling him that the child who you're going to have is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. If his child is the forerunner, what that means is the Messiah is not far behind him. And so Zechariah, when he initially responds to the angel, there's all kinds of doubts probably pooling up in the back of his head because this can't be the time we're under Roman oppression. I have no idea how this prophecy is going to take place. I don't know how you're going to bring your Messiah here. What's the Messiah supposed to look like? All these doubts in Zechariah's mind. And for nine months, he has the ability to ponder all of these things, to evaluate what the angel has said, to replay that moment over and over and over again in his head. How many of you have ever had a conversation you walk away from that conversation, it didn't go how you wanted it to go, and you sit there and when you're driving in the car, you're replaying that conversation over and over again. And when you're, you know, lying in bed at night, you close your eyes and you can't sleep, but you're just replaying that conversation over and over again and wishing you would have said something different, wishing you would have responded differently. And Zechariah has nine months to think about the last conversation that he had, not with a person, but with an angel. He's got to think about his opinion in heaven and how all the angels are probably laughing at this guy because he, he failed to respond appropriately to God when God spoke directly to him. And he's replaying that conversation over and over again and he's evaluating, is what the angel said going to be true? If, the angel says, is, if what the angel said is true, what does that mean about my child? My child is to be the forerunner and I know the scriptures. I know the forerunner is the forerunner for the Messiah. And I know my scriptures, and I know that the Messiah is the one who's going to come to save his people. And I know that in the scriptures it said the Messiah is going to be the suffering servant who's going to lay down his life ultimately for the people of God, who's going to be stricken and slain and abused on behalf of the people. And I know the scriptures, and I know all of the Old Testament sacrifices and all of the Old Testament codes that talk about how there is no forgiveness of sins unless there is the shedding of blood, and how many blood of lambs and bulls and goats has been shed on behalf of the people for our sins. And he knows the scripture and he knows that if the Messiah is to come, that means that that whole old system is going away because the Messiah comes to fulfill that whole old system. And so he, for nine months, gets to ponder all of these truths and when he scribes in on the tablet, his name is John, he's reached a point where he can affirm that what the angel said is true is true. What that means is that Zechariah knows all of what he's saying. He's affirming that his child is John, the one who the angel said John would be, who's to be the forerunner for the Messiah. He's affirming that if his child's name is John, that means there's a, a, the Messiah is coming right after his child. That his child is actually going to be the one who's privileged to pave the way for the Messiah, for the people. He knows that if all of what the angel said is true, and in his statement he affirms what the angel says, he knows that that means that the Messiah is coming to cleanse the people of their sins and to wash them white and to make the people finally right with the Lord their God. He knows that when he writes his name is John, 
that's an affirmation of the very gospel that you and I preach today and that we adore today and that we relive and we recount today because when he writes his name is John, he's affirming all of the statements that the angel has said, knowing all of the Old Testament scripture, and he is agreeing with what the angel has spoken. He knows with bold confidence that the Christ is coming. The Christ who is to be the perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people whose blood, when it's shed, is finally going to fulfill the wrath of God and is going to make the payment and make all the people right with God and reestablish the connection that was broken in the Garden of Eden. He knows all of the Old Testament covenants, the one with Abraham. He knows about the one with Moses. He studied them for his whole life. He's a priest. And he knows when he writes this name, he's affirming that all of these things are going to come to their head in his son's lifetime. His name is John. The perfect sacrifice is to come after the child. John precedes the Christ. The Christ lives and suffers and dies for his people. And he does all that God said he would do. And blessed is the one who counted it on faith what was spoken to him. That's all that he says when he says his name is John. So that is Zechariah, the servant of God, and all that he has spoken in this text. And so let's turn finally then to the message of God and how that message has a ripple effect throughout all the people. The message of God, we can find that really in verse 64 and following. And it says, And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. I have to stop there. His tongue is loosed immediately. Immediately his tongue is loosed. Though we have in this passage alone the miracle of the child that was born to a barren couple and the miracle of a mute man being able to speak again. Both of these miracles occur in this one passage of Scripture. And when the mute man starts speaking, he starts saying all kinds of crazy stuff. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. He says all kinds of prophecy, all kinds of things about the child who is to come. It's summarized here for us in this text. It says, and he spoke, blessing God. That's the summary of what Zechariah said. He's blessing God. For nine months, he's been silent, and when he has a chance to open his mouth, he doesn't talk about how rough it was, how bad it was. He speaks, blessing the name of the Lord his God. He was healed immediately. Immediately. This is a theme in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's gospel, you can actually trace the healing of miracles, and the word that is most commonly associated in those is immediately. When Jesus heals people, it happens immediately. In the book of Acts, when the apostles heal people, they think those things happen immediately. It is the mark of the miraculous of God when things happen right away. Just a few cross-references for you just from the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 39 And he stood over her and rebuked her and the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Luke chapter 5, verse 52, And immediately he rose up before them and went and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Luke 8, 44, She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Luke 8, 47, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declaring in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. Luke chapter 8, verse 55, And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and she directed that something should be given to her to eat. She gets up immediately at once. Luke chapter 13, verse 13, And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. 
All of the healings of Jesus through Luke, and you can trace them through Acts through the apostles, they happen immediately. When God moves, his miraculous is unmistakable. It can't be confused. It can't be up for question. It can't be up for debate. It is undeniable what happens when God moves. The miraculous in Jesus' time is the very evidence that he leverages against the Pharisees to say, if you don't have to believe me, believe the works that I'm doing and showing you. It gets to the point where when he raises Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees can't deny that miracle, and so they debate whether they're going to do away with the evidence and kill Lazarus again. They are, it is so undeniable, the evidence of God's miraculous movings. And I think that the Christian church today can be reminded of the fact that the biblical standard for healing, the biblical standard for the miraculous, is instantaneous. It's undeniable. It's not wishy-washy. It's not soft. It's instantaneous. It's undeniable. Don't let us as a church be guilty of dumbing down and taming God's miraculous healing gifts. They are undeniable. God heals people miraculously. And he does so instantaneously, at a moment's notice, undeniably, unexplainably. That's how he heals. And notice the effect of this com- combination of both the healing and the preaching of Zechariah. It has an effect on the people. His mouth was opened and he spoke blessing God, verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. The combination of all of these things give the people a sense of God. They give them a sense of the supernatural. And in the same way when the angel showed up to Zechariah and he was afraid and trembling and the angel shows up to Mary and she's afraid and trembling, when they hear all of these things happening, fear comes upon them. These events completely shake the community. They rattle everyone. They shake them loose. They shake them from their comfort. Fear comes upon all the people. And all of these things are talked about through all the hill country of Judea. This is the talk of the town for the next X amount of weeks. And not only is it the talk of the town, but you'll see in verse 66, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. That's a significant statement. That's not shock value news that people talk about and forget after a time. This is news that people are shaken by and it completely changes them. They are left thinking about this and pondering this and wondering the truth of what was said and what could be contained if this is really what's happening. If the Spirit of God is really moving, what is the significance of these events? And all the people are talking about this and they lay them up in their heart and they ponder them. Just a cross-reference for that. Malachi chapter 2, verse 2 talks about what happens when you don't ponder God's law in your heart. It says, And if you will not listen, I will not t- and you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. He's accusing the priesthood then of not internalizing the things that he has spoken to them. They, they read it, and they forget it. They don't lay it up in their heart. Here the people hear the message of the gospel through Zechariah, through the events that are unfolding, and they ponder it in their heart. They lay it up in their heart. And they ponder these things and they wonder about them, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with this child. John, the forerunner of the Messiah, is already about his master's work. He's already causing the people to wonder about the coming events of the Messiah. Through his very birth account, he's already doing the very bidding of God himself, and he's already about the business of his God. 
again, this is not a shock value. This is a lasting impact. The gospel is not just a shock value thing. It is a lasting impact kind of thing, which means that you and I can go to church Sunday to Sunday, sitting in the pews. And there are many people who sit in the pews of churches and they experience shock value every Sunday and they forget about it by the time Monday rolls around. Or they might experience shock value at a retreat or at an event. And for a few days, that shock value might last and eventually it goes away. But the difference is the people who ponder those things in their heart and who internalize the truths of the gospel. It is like the seed that is planted in good soil that doesn't just grow up and wither away and die. It grows up and it goes deep with its roots and it grows up. And at the time of the harvest, that fruit is ready to be harvested. People who never take the gospel to heart are all over the place. They hear it and they forget it. And I pray that if you have heard the gospel, that you would ponder it in your heart. And if you have already heard the gospel and you are reminded in this moment of that truth, that you would take time this week to ponder those things in your heart. Because the truth of all that is contained in these scriptures is worth reminding ourselves of. It's worth pondering. It's worth internalizing. And they say about this child, who is he? And all of these things can be attributed to the main character of this whole story, which is found in the last verse, for the hand of the Lord was with him. The reason the child is significant, the reason Zechariah is significant, the reason Elizabeth is significant, the reason all these events are moving forward and the community is impacted, is not because Zechariah is particularly highly righteous or good. It's not because Elizabeth is particularly holy and pious. It's not because John is particularly gifted. It's because God's hand is upon all that is happening. The early church experiences a similar growth in Acts eleven twenty one, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The common denominator, the hand of God. Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, attributes Joseph's success in Egypt after he's been sold into slavery by the fact that the very hand of God is upon him. And this is something that I think all of us can turn, internalize today. If the hand of the Lord is not with us, if it's not with this church, if it's not with our movements and our lives and our careers, then those things will fail. So then may the, hand of the, his, the, may the hand of the Lord be upon us today. May the hand of the Lord be upon this church. May the hand of the Lord be upon you as you move throughout your career, as you move throughout your life. May the hand of the Lord be on you as you progress in your job. May the hand be, of the Lord be on you in your relationships. <coughs> May the hand of the Lord be on you so that you may experience ministry that is fruitful and glorious to your master, that you can be about his business as John is in this text. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the movement of your spirit through Zechariah and through Elizabeth, through the conception of John and through uh, his early impact into the country of Judea. Lord, I can speak from a personal longing of the fact that we desire you to move in Indianapolis in this way. We desire you to move on Ruckle Street in this way. We desire you to move uh, throughout our communities, throughout our lives, throughout our jobs, throughout our careers in this way. Lord, I pray that your hand would be upon us, that we would not take these things as mere shock value, things that we can be surprised by and forget about, but Lord, that these things would radically change us. That your hand would not be on us for a moment and then leave us, but Lord, that your hand would always be upon us, sustaining us, encouraging us, creating endurance. 
Lord, so that we cannot attribute any of this success to ourselves or to our own gain or for our own glory, but Lord, that it would all be for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.